So Hebrews 2, starting at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It is being testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let us pray. Father, be pleased to speak through Scott this evening. May it be a time of upbuilding for him as he speaks and for us as we listen. May our hearts be warmed by your truth this evening. We pray this for Jesus' glory. Amen. As we kick off, let me recap what we've seen so far over the past few Sunday evenings in the book of Hebrews. Right at the start of the letter, in many ways setting the theme for the entire book, the author of Hebrews states emphatically that Jesus, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, is God's son. He is God's full and ultimate word spoken to his people. Throughout history, God spoke to his people through the prophets that he sent, but now, verse 2 of chapter 1, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. We read in verse 3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I've only ever once received a letter with a, a wax stamp on the back holding the envelope shut. I think it was an invite for a really fancy wedding. I also think I decided I was going to go as soon as I saw the envelope. But the wax stamp that you see on the back of a letter like that is the exact imprint of the seal that is used. So when you see the stamp, you see the seal. Hebrews says, when you see Jesus, you see God. And this means that God has nothing to add to his own explanation, his own revelation to his people after Jesus. Because Jesus has sufficiently explained and revealed who God is. To listen to Jesus is to listen to God because he is God. To see Jesus is to see God because he is God. If you want to see what God is like, 
look at Jesus and look no further. Hebrews then goes on, and we saw this last week. Hebrews goes on to explain that Jesus, as the Son, is vastly superior in status and in power to any angel. We see very clearly that Jesus is the great, unchanging creator. He laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. He rules, he judges as God. Angels, by contrast, chapter 1, verse 14 explains that they're ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of God's people. They're real beings. They're powerful. They're terrifying. We see that every time one appears in the Bible. But they rightly understand their position under Jesus' authority. See, Jesus' status as the Son means that God's people don't need angels to bring messages from God because we now have something better, much better. We have God's full and ultimate word, his son, Jesus Christ. And all of this leads the author into warning the reader in chapter 2, verse 1, that therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. See, because of Jesus' status as son, because of his might, because of his majesty, we are in serious trouble if we ignore him or if we pay less attention to who he is and what he says. And the Christians who would have first read Hebrews 2,000 years ago would have felt under a pressure from those around them who didn't follow Jesus just to drift away from the claims of Christ, the gospel of Christ, back towards something that was maybe just a little bit more culturally comfortable. And that's true of any Christian throughout history. We all face exactly the same problem, exactly the same temptation. But 2,000 years ago, in a strong Jewish culture, there might have been followers of the traditions and rituals of Judaism who said, angels, we know our history. Angels bring us messages from God, right? So we should look for angels to tell us what God is saying to us. That's a much more exciting, a much more appealing option than listening to a man crucified as a criminal on a Roman cross. And it doesn't take long to see the way in which turning the volume down on Jesus, the Son, and turning the volume up on angels, the messengers, would have made the lives of these Christians significantly easier. But the warning from the author of this letter we're looking at this evening is that to drift from Jesus, to turn down the volume on what he taught, to drift from the gospel that he shared, to pay less attention to him, is to neglect the great salvation that he won for us, from sin, from judgment, from death. And actually, all of that helps us to see why the letter is so full of the Old Testament. Hebrews says, okay, Christian, the tug that you feel back to Judaism in your Jewish context 
that's real, but in reality, all of the words of the law and the prophets, all the scriptures that the Jews prize so highly, actually, all they do is point forwards to God's ultimate word, his son, Jesus. I've been in the, the privileged position of seeing one close friend of mine becoming a father, and another close friend of mine recently tell me and tell the rest of our group that he's going to become a dad. And often the first thing you'll be shown in a situation like that, either on social media or in person, is the photograph of the baby scan. It will be carried around with them wherever they go. It will be waved around coffee tables, family gatherings, when the postman comes. But it would be strange for a new parent after the baby has been born, looking at their newborn baby, son or daughter, to then look back at the baby scan photo and say, I think I prefer this. And that is because the baby towards which the scan was pointing has come. And a baby is much better than the scan, so I'm told. <laughs> Likewise, it would be strange and foolish for these Christians to leave Jesus, to leave the gospel, and wander back to the Jewish traditions and religions. If you like, they were just the baby scan photo. They point forwards towards the arrival of Jesus, towards the Messiah, and he is much, much better. And it's why at a church like Chalmers, you'll see us spending time in the Old Testament, but always landing on Jesus. In fact, it's exactly what the letter to the Hebrews does. There are three uh, quotations this evening from the Old Testament that Hebrews has selected to help the reader, to help us understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us as he came to earth. And the first thing for us to notice this evening, you'll see it on uh, your sheet there, the first thing for us to notice is that the Son was made lower than the angels to take on humanity and suffer death. See, our first quotation in Hebrews this evening comes from Psalm 8, written roughly a thousand years before Jesus was born. And this is a psalm written by the earthly king of God's people at the time, King David, a good king. And the psalm sings of the victory God has won for his people over their enemies, won through those who look weak from a worldly perspective, infants, babies. The psalm sings of the dignity humanity has, we're not like any other creature on the earth. We've been placed to rule over the created order under God's command. And then right in the middle of Psalm 8 is this section that we have quoted here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and the start of verse 8. See, the psalm says, verse 7, that the Son of Man has been made for a little while lower than the angels. Psalm 8 promises that the Son of Man, the very same title that Jesus takes upon himself as he comes to rescue his people, the Son of Man will go from being 
the authoritative creator, ruler, and judge of the world to being made for a little while lower than the angels. See, Hebrews says that Jesus fulfills Psalm 8. This son of man will step down, take on humanity, and win victory for his people. Hebrews says that Jesus fulfills Psalm 8. This son of man will succeed where humanity has failed by living a sinless, obedient life. He is still truly God. He is still fully God. He always has been. He always will be. But he has for a little while been Lord as he takes on flesh. But his humility does not end there. See, this son of man is born as a baby, lives a life of rejection, sorrow, persecution, and ultimately goes to the cross. Verse 9 says that he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It really is the most incredible thing that this Son of Man could do and has done. It is the greatest display, the highest display of humility, compassion, grace, and love for his people. There is absolutely no way that humanity could be rescued, no way that humanity could be made right before God without God's intervention. And so the destination for Jesus born on earth as a human, was to suffer and to die for us before being raised to eternal life as a conquering king. See, the glory and honor that crowns Jesus is the moment of his greatest humility. If the introductory section of Hebrews excavates his might, his majesty, and his power, Well, this section unfolds just how far he went in his humility, how far he stepped down for his people. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, went from the highest place above the created order, above the angels, laid aside his majesty to step into humanity. He took on flesh. He tasted death for us. He took the penalty for our sins that we deserve from us so that we'd never have to taste it ourselves and then was crowned as king with glory and with honor, rightly so. Jesus, the son, was made lower than the angels to take on humanity and suffer death. Secondly, verses 10 to 13 the success of Jesus' humility, his stepping down into humanity, the suffering of his death was so that he could make us his sanctified family. You might occasionally hear, I know I have, you might occasionally hear someone explain to you that they believe Jesus' death on the cross was a truly inspirational moment of martyrdom. The death of a man who stood so staunchly for justice and love that he was willing to lay down his life 
for those ideals. And whilst there's truth to that, it completely misses the crucial consequences of what Jesus came to do for us. See, the reason why Jesus willingly stepped down from his position of majesty to live a perfect and sinless life was so that he could make us holy, so that he could sanctify us as our perfected priest. We'll see this much more explicitly next week with Roger, but just cast your eye down to verse 17 of chapter 2. It says this, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, through the Old Testament, we read of priests serving as mediators between God and God's people. God made his laws very clear. They weren't too difficult to follow. But the hearts of his people, then and now, are so hard and so fickle that we need somebody to mediate between our rebellious selves and God and his right and holy judgment on sin and evil. Hebrews tells us that Jesus, the Son, comes to take on humanity, suffer and die, so that he can serve us before God as our priest, as our mediator. Jesus has come to suffer and die to make us holy. In order to mediate between humanity and God, he takes on humanity as God. He becomes a man to suffer so that we might be sanctified, made right before a holy and just God. Verse 10 describes his work as fitting. Verse 10 says it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in order to bring many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus' work is completely in line. It is fitting with God's character. It is fitting with God's purposes. We see his love. We see his justice. We see his mercy. We see his glory as Jesus dies on the cross for our sins to sanctify us. Now that Jesus is fully man and fully God, he is perfect to serve as our priest. Now that Jesus has taken our sins upon himself and suffered death, he is perfect to bridge the gap between rebellious humanity and the God who made us. That's the sense in which he has been made perfect for his role, verse 11. Sorry, verse 10, end of verse 10. Make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He can sympathize perfectly, empathize perfectly with us. He is our strong and perfect plea before the throne of God. And I cannot think of any other ruler, king, or authority that has been or would be so willing to do this for his people who have stubbornly rejected him and his laws time and time again. Occasionally you see politicians on TV stepping down, as it were, into the situations of suffering 
constituents pulling on wellies in flooded areas, playing a, a xylophone with kids in nurseries. And you're always aware that it might just be a PR stunt because as it just so happens, the cameras are there and they're rolling. But with Jesus, there isn't any need for him to stoop down, to step down into humanity. He's already in a position of eternal authority and might. And yet he chooses willingly out of love and compassion to take on humanity, to identify with us, to take our sins upon his shoulders so that he might sanctify us. His death makes us right with God. And so now, if we have placed our faith and trust in him, verse 11 says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, i.e. Jesus who sanctifies, and those people of his who are sanctified, literally it reads, are all of one. We have gone from sinful rebels against him to family. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. We are brought into the kingdom. We are brought into sonship under the sun. We are brought into a loving, familial relationship with our God. And the Old Testament references here help explain that in a bit more depth. Verse 12 is a quote from Psalm 22, the first part of which Jesus cries on the cross as he does everything mentioned here in Hebrews. As he goes to the cross, he takes our sin upon himself to make us holy. But Psalm 22 starts off with a cry of anguish, but becomes a victory song. Psalm 22 is a song of the king, verse 12, telling of God's name to his brothers. In the midst of the congregation, singing God's praise. Hebrews says that Jesus fulfills Psalm 22. After God has won victory for his people, through the temporary suffering of the good king, the good king will tell others of the good news. And that is exactly what Jesus does when he wins victory for his people. Jesus, the even better king, crowned because of his suffering, stands as the victorious king telling others of what God has done, sharing the victory that he has won over sin and death to his brothers, to his family, to us. It's what he did after he rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. It's what he does in and through his people every single time his word is opened every single time the gospel is shared, every single time someone hears about the victory of Christ. He sings the praise of God the Father in the midst of the gathering of God's people. It really is the best news any one of us could ever hear. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He has made us holy. He has made us family. Whether you wouldn't call yourself a Christian you've been a Christian for one day, or you've known Jesus for many, many years. It is news that you and I need to hear all the time. And then the third and final Old Testament reference 
Hebrews picks up is from Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13. See, this message broadcast across the world by the king, by Jesus and by his followers, the message of Jesus the Son stepping down in humility as a human before being crowned with glory and honor as king, Jesus making us holy as our priest, Jesus making us holy as our mediator, that is not a message that is universally welcomed today, nor is it a message that is universally welcomed 2,000 years ago when Hebrews was written, nor was it universally welcomed 2,700 years ago when Isaiah was written. See, Isaiah chapter 8 sits in a part of Isaiah when the people of God are facing a choice. It seems like God has gone silent. It seems like power and security is found in the surrounding nations of the day. What will God's people do? Will they trust God? Or will they trust earthly political powers? Well, Isaiah's right response is to double down on the faithful God he knows and to double down on the gospel that he shares. So Isaiah says, we see it here in verse 13, I will put my trust in him, I and the children God has given me. See, Isaiah ignores the siren calls of the surrounding nations and continues to faithfully obey and trust in the Lord. And through the prophet, through the the leader of God's people at the time and his children, in a posture of trust, they follow the ways of the Lord, even when it is really very unpopular to do so. The victory song of salvation is sung even in a context where there are unbelieving ears. And Hebrews says that Jesus fulfills Isaiah chapter 8. Jesus says the faithful leader believes and shares God's word with his people. Hebrews says in the midst of an unbelieving world, this leader will put his trust in him. This leader will trust in the Lord and everything that he has done. And God will save him. God will save this leader. God will save those gathered around him. God will save the children God has given him. And Hebrews says that that is Jesus. Hebrews says that in the midst of an unbelieving and hostile context, God's people are saved by a faithful leader. Jesus' sinless obedience, his life of trusting in the commands of the Lord that has rescued the children of God gathered around him. See, Psalm 8 says, the Son of Man will step down in humility to a position and a place lower than the angels. Psalm 22 says, the King will sing of the victory of God amongst the people of God. Isaiah 8 says, the leader of God's people will choose faithfulness in a faithless world and as a result will rescue God's people. Hebrews says, This is Jesus. All of this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is the fulfillment 
of all of these promises. Jesus, the Son, is our good priest and good king. Hebrews says, Jesus, the Son, was made lower than the angels to take on humanity, to suffer death, so that he can make us his people, his holy, sanctified family. Well, a few quick conclusions to draw from Hebrews as we draw our time to a close. First, no Christian 2,000 years ago or today has any right to change this message delivered to us by Jesus. Nor do we have any reason to. See, I know, and I'm sure you do too, the pressure that comes when we share Jesus to tweak the gospel, the news of what he has done, just to make things slightly more comfortable for us. Well, Hebrews would say, fight that temptation by remembering all that he has done. Jesus' work on the cross, his role as our mediator, means that forgiveness is fully available, but it's only to be found in him and in him alone. Righteousness before God cannot be found any other way. Every single time I think that a good deed or something about me will make me more favorable in God's sight, I haven't understood the gospel. I haven't understood Hebrews 2. I haven't understood the depth to which Jesus went from being above the angels to the cross to save me. Every time that I think that a sin that I've committed, the sin that I said I would never commit ever again, every single time I think that that will surely separate me, I haven't understood Hebrews 2. I haven't understood the gospel. I haven't understood the depth to which he went to save me. Why on earth would I change this good news? Why would I share a message that was any different to this? Second, if you're sitting here tonight completely crushed by the weight of your sin, by the weight of your sinfulness, when Satan tempts you to despair, look to God's throne. Look to he who made an end to all of your sin. And know that he is not ashamed to call you brothers, to call you family. He doesn't begrudge the rescue that he won for you. Sometimes I think that we understand Christianity as when we do things that are contrary to what God wants us to do, we accrue some sort of debt. And then when Jesus rescues us, he moves us from being in the red, so to speak, to somewhere in the middle, where we're, we're not quite... We're not quite acceptable in God's sight, or, or, or we are, but then the sins that we commit kind of move us along the, the spectrum, so to speak, and then we, we do more things that are good, that are godly, and that kind of accrues credit over time. But actually, the message of Hebrews is that all of your sins, all of your transgressions, are paid for by your good king. Your pleas and your prayers for forgiveness are heard loudly by your good priest and your mediator, 
And that is wonderful news in which we can rejoice, especially in moments of difficulty and suffering. And this is the third thing I want us to see. In those moments of temptation, when sin crouches near, we can turn to Jesus, the founder of our faith, and say the Christian life, obedience to God in a hostile context, it hurts. It's hard. And the sun above the angels, the king crowned with glory and honor, turns back to us and says, I know. Trust me, I know. Our good king, our good priest, the son, listens as one who has walked this path of gospel suffering and gospel persecution and gospel hardship. He has stepped down from above the angels to do so. He listens. He understands us in our weaknesses and struggles. He helps us in our weaknesses and struggles against sin and against evil with all the authority and compassion of our king and our priest. Isn't he good, Chalmers? Let me pray for us as we finish. Father, we thank you so much for the victory over the enemies that we face, you have won for us. Thank you, Father, that our sin, which rightly separates us from you, uh, has been cancelled by the work of Christ on the cross. Thank you, Father, for the way that this son has stepped down from a, a position of exaltation to wear our sin and our shame, to die on the cross for us. And thank you, Father, that he now operates as our priest. He now is not ashamed to call us brothers. Thank you, Father, that as we sit here tonight, if we know, believe, and have responded to the gospel, if we are in Christ Jesus, then we are right in your sight. Father, help us to understand this. Help us to understand how profoundly this changes how we live our lives. Help us to respond to this with gratitude, thankfulness. Help us to respond by earnestly desiring to share this wonderful good news with those who don't yet know you, and with our own hearts every single day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.